You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we are still in the studio, still in the book of Samuel, still. <laughs> still. <laughs> the first book of Samuel, even more. We've got three more to go. <laughs> yeah, so now, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, we've been here for a while, but I'm really enjoying it because there's a whole lot of stuff that's coming to light that I'd never thought of before. Um, and, it, and the story is much more entertaining. It's mu- and it's not just about entertainment, but it's much more interesting and engaging is probably the better thing to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we blow through these stories because we think we know them. And, you know, we've seen the flannel graph version. We've seen the Veggie Tales version. Uh, we know what the popular movie version mm-hmm. is, but we yeah. don't often think about the details. And even that, that's the other thing that kind of baffles me about Christian movies is how often we try to strip away the humanity of the main characters, which is what makes a movie good, yeah. Christian or otherwise. Well, I was just thinking about flannel graphs of the last story we did, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, they left out one icon, and then I got to thinking, <laughs> how would VeggieTales handle that? Um, so, anyway. Maybe we need to write in and ask, hey, by the way, we have a serious biblical question. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Phil, what's his name? What uh, Vischer? Vischer, is that his name? I, that was the- sure. Why not? We'll go with that. I don't think he's in charge anymore, and he he might actually think that was pretty funny. I, I have no idea. I don't keep up with pop Christianity. Am I a horrible person for not keeping up with pop? No, it probably actually makes <laughs> you a better person if you're not keeping up with pop Christianity. I think being aware of it is uh, vital uh, to survival, but anyhow, that's probably a whole other topic <laughs> for another day. Well, um, I, I should say I'll probably get back into the Veggie Tales things before too long because you know grandkids. That's right. So got two of them now. <laughs> yeah, but, which is why you're aware of what's going on with that more than I am. Yeah, because <laughs> so. I've got two little girls. So I think Netflix actually owns the rights to Veggie Tales right now. That's crazy. Or at least they have some kind of deal because they have an original Veggie Tales series. Oh wow! Not near as good as the old school stuff. Um, keep huh. trying Netflix. You'll get there. <laughs> so. Anyway, we should get on to our topic. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were talking about uh, David's wives, or the, the first possible wife and the second one that did become a wife, which were Saul's daughters, uh, Marab and Mikal. And um, we're, we were going to talk about how they tie back with other biblical stories. And uh, again, uh, shout out to Vivian. Uh, she's in our paddle store. She's one of our huge supporters. Uh, just one of those people I haven't met yet in real life, but um, just been a huge contributor to what we're doing yeah. here. So got to get international travel back before we can meet her in person. So. Yes. Well, she's promised to feed me should we get for go visit. So I'm, yeah, you know, I'm all about the food. <laughs> so anytime we start talking about uh, two wives, particularly sister wives within the Bible, um, almost immediately our mind is going to jump to Rachel and Leah. And Saul's words, even that he says, you know, I will give you my elder daughter, uh, these echo Laban's words to Jacob when he's trying to justify why Jacob, uh, why Laban had deceived Jacob 
and tricked him into marrying the older daughter, Aaliyah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm assuming at this point that, you know, most of us are familiar with the story of, of uh, Rachel and Leah, that there was a deception there that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel and then Laban um, tricked Jacob into marrying Leah mm-hmm. by sneaking Leah into the wedding tent at the last minute. So even the, the, the possibility of deception, and this kind of depends on how we read the story of Marab, did... Uh, did Saul deceive David in the terms of that marriage? And there's two possible ways that Saul could have deceived David. One is that he just didn't give Merab to David because mm-hmm. David had killed Goliath. So that would have been a deception. Uh, the other possibility is we're told that at the time uh, that it, when the time came for David to marry Merab, she had been married to someone else. Mm-hmm. So there's another way or maybe both ways that Saul uh, deceived David. We aren't certain on that. but. <clears throat> I think the idea of deception is present. Now, Laban is also identified as a Nakash, a, a diviner. And we talked about that quite a bit. And we know that divination is going to play a major role in Saul's life. Again, right. we're looking forward to that um, episode that we're going to get to do on the Witch of Endor or the Medium of Endor. We also have this connection with Mikal and Rachel specifically because Mikal is, we're getting ready to go into a story where she uses the teraphim uh, to hide David's flight from Saul. When David runs away from Saul, Mikal puts a teraphim in the bed. And so we have that direct connection back to Rachel because Rachel hid the teraphim mm-hmm. when they escaped from Laban. And <clears throat> The Bible tells us specifically that Laban sells his daughters to Jacob. That's the word it used. And, and this is essentially what Saul is doing with his daughters. And I remember the bride price for Michal was 100 Philistine foreskins. And we should remember that Saul is a direct descendant of Rachel. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the, Rachel's youngest son. Therefore, uh, Mikal and Marab are also direct descendants of Rachel. So mm-hmm. we're connected back to her story. Now, when we have these kind of retellings in the Bible, we want to look at the similarities. The similarities are what tells us, yes, this is connected. These are why you should read these two stories together. Sure. But the distinctions are what tells us what's important about the two stories being read together. So we're going to, to look at some of these connections even further, and, but we're also going to look at the distinctions. So. Laban is using his daughters as a way to control Jacob. You know, you're going to work for me for seven years to marry Rachel. You're going to work for me for seven years to, to marry Rachel again. Uh, right, you're right. you're going to stay with me. I'm only going to give you what I want you to have. Uh, we aren't going to have any terms of your service uh, to me, and we aren't going to have uh, any idea of what your set rate of pay is going to be. So Jacob has to come up with, with his own. And so essentially Laban was capable of enslaving Jacob specifically for 14 years, possibly even beyond that. Mm. And we are told specifically that the people of Israel are enslaved to Saul. So we have another connection there. Okay. Now, when Jacob tries to leave, um, leave Laban behind. Laban chases after and he demands to know why wasn't he allowed to say goodbye to his daughters and kiss his grandkids. And, you know, he would have thrown a big party because, you know, that's the kind of person Laban is. Um, And 
We're told in Genesis 31, 45, specifically that the daughters and the flocks that Jacob took with him were still considered to be Laban's property. They were not considered to belong to be belonging to Jacob at this point. Hmm. And I think we over overlook that. Now, Laban also gives a command that he has absolutely no right to give in Genesis 31, 48. He tells Jacob, do not oppress my daughters with other wives. You, you cannot marry anyone else. This is it. Now, we know that not only did Jacob have Rachel and Leah, uh, he also had their maidservants as wives. But beyond that, they weren't supposed to have any, anyone else. Laban is very actively trying to use his daughters as a way to subjugate David, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob, Jacob yeah. to himself because he doesn't have the right to retain ownership of his daughters who are now married to another man. And he doesn't have right to retain ownership of the flocks. And he certainly has no right to demand that David, that Jacob refuse to marry someone else. So we see how these women are being used as pawns in both scenarios, because Saul is attempting to use his daughters as a way to retain control over David, but also to endanger his life. You know, he wants Michal's love for David to be a snare for him. Sure. Now, we know that David successfully fights Saul's uh, wars for him, and through this, Israel becomes prosperous. Saul is celebrated as a great king, and Jacob does the same thing. He, he takes what Laban has entrusted to him, and he increases it, and Laban's wealth is increased through Jacob's um, shepherding over Laban's flocks. So we also have that parallel there and that idea of taking what the father-in-law gives that's meant to, you know, be something that afflicts the husband actually winds up being a blessing for not only the husband, but also for the father-in-law. Okay. So the, the major contrast here, of course, is that Jacob loves Rachel and Michal loves David. So we know from the get-go that this story's not going to play out in the same way. And we're, we're getting this set up that we should be looking for the parallels, but we're also going to see what the difference is going to be. And I'm going to hold off on what those differences are going to be because that's actually going to be demonstrated more fully when we get to Macau, whenever she um, hides David and then again, or hides the teraphim in place of David. Mm. And then again, when we see, find her at a window, and we're going to talk about why the window is so important. But Another story that this is connected to, and you can't talk about circumcision and marriage in the Bible without talking about Dina and Shechem. Right. So that's Genesis 34. Jacob and his family, they've left Laban's house. So, I mean, there's this continuity to it that's kind of interesting that the two stories kind of flow together. And Jacob has entered into Canaan with his family, and they've camped outside of Shechem, and they're staying there for a while. And why they're staying there, we don't know. We just know it's, in the, it's the wrong place for them to be. Uh, they're supposed to be going to Bethel. Yeah. And um, the, the prince of the city, also named Shechem, uh, he rapes Dina. But then after the rape, he desires to marry Dina. And Simon and Levi, um, the, the two brothers of Dina, they object, and they say their sister cannot marry this uncircumcised people. And so they demand that not just that her husband be circumcised, but that all of the city in mass be circumcised. And while the men of Shechem are healing, her brothers attack the city, and they take the women of the city as spoils of war. So it's not okay for their, their sister to marry into this other population. But it's totally okay for them 
to take these women as wives. A little bit of a double standard there. Just a little bit. Yeah. And the thing is, we've got this, this very interesting retelling of this, this violence where the sacred ritual is used as a way to subjugate their enemies. And in Genesis 34, this is frowned upon. There's a critique there. The idea that anyone would use a holy sacred rite as an act of warfare, it's not viewed in a positive light. Right. So now you've got some, some questions being put on David's act. What was David doing? Why was he doing this? Why was he so happy about this? Was this something he should have done? Should he have declined to, to abuse this religious ritual, the sacred act commanded by God, in order to advance his own cause? Because I think when we see, read through his story, it looks as if he's really playing the political games, uh, the games trying to get some stature and pre prestige. Right. Now, Jacob is furious with, with his sons for having attacked the city and... Uh, the, he, he really sees what they did as a horrible act. And what's been interesting in that story, Jacob doesn't talk through most of the story. We're given the narrative. Uh, but when Jacob does talk, he never once mentions his daughter's well-being. He seems to be in favor of allowing the marriage. He doesn't seem to have any major objection. It's the sons, they're her brothers, that have the objection. Mm -hmm. and, and he is enraged whenever the sons... Um, Act and, and the story is very problematic because there's no defined hero. Uh, the, the Torah is very vague about who is in the right. But what we're being shown is everyone is feeling justified in what they're doing, but yet no one is doing anything that's really right or good. There's always something just a little off. Yeah. <clears throat> so we have the connecting themes, which, you know, the marriage of a daughter to an outsider. David was an outsider. He says this about himself. I'm not good enough to be married into your family. But we also have the outsider becoming worthy through an act of circumcision. In Genesis 34, the prince of Shechem circumcises himself and the, the, his city. David forces circumcision on the Philistines. We have fathers who are more concerned with the political and strategic advantages of marrying their daughters off than we do about their daughter's well-being, and they certainly aren't defending their daughters. The women in both stories, they're not given a voice at this point. We, we don't know anything about their thoughts, their hearts, their intentions. We just, they're, they're being used as pawns. Am I stretching this to think that this is a typology? Show, uh, give, give me some more to work with. Uh, you, were, you were talking about you know, um, someone being made worthy through circumcision, um, but it's the circumcision of Gentiles mm -hmm. before the wedding. Might be a little bit of a stretch, but I see where you're going. <laughs> it's like it's almost there. I feel like I'm missing something, and I may be way off, but it's just. I'd have to play with that yeah. one. Because, you know, ultimately the people being circumcised are slaughtered and they don't live. So, well, yeah. you know, it kind of falls apart well, at I that point. Well, I know it does fall apart there, <laughs> but I was just, it was just curious. I, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Just thought I'd throw it out there. If anybody has anything on that, or if I'm, if I'm way off, just tell me. It was just like a random thought that came <laughs> yeah. together. Well, why not? Or it didn't come together. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's... That's the thing with connecting themes. It's like where do they where do they work together and where the, do they diverge? And and one of 
the ways this, these stories works together, I think it's my um, final point is, you know, basically the women in both stories are the excuse for weaponizing religion. Mm-hmm. And tell me that's still not happening today. I mean, I, I, I'm seeing it where women become the excuse for saying, hey, we're more holy than you are because of how we react or respond to the women and their issues. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. often there's no thought or consideration put into what the women actually need, what they're thinking, or to hear their voice. And the fact that the women are kept silent and muzzled in these stories that are so, I mean, these are intimate stories mm-hmm. about women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, rape is not something that you just talk about casually over lunch. No. And so then, then to also just be handed off to a stranger to be married to them, or, you know, maybe they knew David because he had spent some time in the castle, but they weren't asked what they thought about it, uh, particularly Marab. And we at least know that Michael loved David, so good for her. She was getting the husband she wanted. But at the same time, what about poor Marab? And what did she go through? So, um, but these, these stories help inform how we interpret the rest of the interactions that are going to happen. So I want to go back to our story with David, which we're in, um, first Samuel chapter 18, uh, verses 20, uh, 28 and 29. And we're going to return to those, those other stories as we continue through. So that just kind of laid the groundwork for you. So. It says, but when Saul saw and knew that David, that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So everything that Saul has been doing to undo David, to destroy him, is, is coming undone. Hmm. And Michal really did love David. Her allegiance was for her husband and not for her father. And when Saul realized that he could not manipulate his daughter into helping him, just like Rachel and Leah switched their allegiance to to Jacob, when Jacob said, hey, we're going to leave, and they're like, absolutely, why not? Our dad sold us. We don't don't need anything to do with him. Sorry, the phrasing was just a little shocking. (laughs) I laughed out of more like, well, that's a terrible way to look at things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they they were very realistic about their position within their father's house. And we're going to find that Mikhail is very realistic about their position in her father's house. And so that, that makes her a very interesting uh, perspective on women within the Bible, how they're not presented as, you know, poor little, you know, just bumbling fools who somebody needs to take care of them because they don't know you to be, they aren't smart enough to take care of themselves. Right. They actually have a far greater grasp on the realities of a situation than many times than what the men do. And so they, each time within both stories, the wives switch allegiance. And this is, this frightens Saul. And the, the big difference though, is even though Mikhail's love is what allows her not to be manipulated, we get this disturbing bit of information about David. We're never told or we're not told. And this is we're, what we're not told is what's disturbing. He, he's never said to love Macau. His soul is never drawn to her. Like the princess Shechem was drawn to Dina. Mm-hmm. He never speaks tenderly to her heart. Like the princess Shechem did with Dina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
in some ways, David is being shown as inferior to this outsider, where this other outsider said, hey, I messed up. I did the wrong thing, but I want to make it right and rectify it sure. because I do have compassion for this woman. David never does that. And instead, David chooses the route that Simon and Levy take. He becomes a ma man of brutal violence. He mm -hmm. becomes a man who doesn't listen to the voice of the women in his world. And in this, there, there is some critique of him because the Torah is not fond of what uh, Simon and Levy did. Matter of fact, we see that with Jacob's uh, blessing on his sons who talk about how violent his, his two boys are. So... David really becomes a lesson throughout the course of Samuel, a book, uh, a lesson in temptation, but he also becomes a lesson in um, repentance. He, he shows us that greatness can corrupt, mm -hmm. but also humility restores. Yeah. And so this is the reason why he's celebrated. And a lot of people think, oh, he's celebrated because he did so many great and wonderful things. No, he's not celebrated because of all the great and wonderful things he did. He's celebrated. Because every time he messes up, he goes back to God, and we get to have that picture of how God redeems and God restores. And we, we celebrate God's redemption and restoration, and we celebrate a man who says, I can be humble enough to participate and to ask for that. Mm -hmm. So it's not that David is even that great of a role model, because most of the time he's not. So verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often and as often as they came, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. So the writer reminds us of Israel's current con condition. They have been enslaved to Saul, um, most of the commanders, but David is not. And because he's not enslaved to a cult of personality, this, this leader and political figure, he is God's warrior. Mm -hmm. He has more success. And so the, the drive, the, the, the writer wants to remind us this because throughout this, if we've got the stories of Rachel and Leah in our, in our background running mm -hmm. back there and the story of Dina, we're, we're seeing that David is starting to be someone that, that is problematic for us. And he should be because he's been indifferent to the, the feelings of the women. He's desiring them for the wrong reasons. And he has used that sacred right as a means to victory. And so, um, and we see this kind of thing repeated later on when he eats the showbread. We, yes, we actually do. And we also see it uh, repeated in his own household when Tamar, uh, and, or Amnon rapes Tamar. Mm -hmm. And we began to see the dysfunction, just like Genesis 34 shows this dysfunction in Jacob's family and why one son had to rise above all the rest. And we mm -hmm. waited to see which one it was going to be. Now, we're going to see how David's family also suffers from that same kind of dysfunction that just, it, it tears the nation apart. Yeah. And so Literally. it does. Yeah. So, um, as we move into chapter 19, uh, Jonathan reemerges. We, we haven't heard from him for a while. And, um, we begin to see kind of, the depths of conflict that he's in. Um, Saul is both his father and his king. David is his friend. Their souls are knit together. And verse 1 through 7, Jonathan makes this plan with David. And David's going to approach Saul and plead David's case. Or Jonathan's going to approach Saul and plead David's case. And the household that, that Jonathan has loved with his father, his sisters, and David, 
it's been broken and Jonathan wants it restored. And so he frames his argument by, by appealing to Saul's morality. And he begins with, let not the king sin. And he ends with the phrase, why then will you sin? And we're reminded that, that Saul, he reminds Saul that David did not sin whenever he defeated Goliath. That the reason why Saul is, is jealous has nothing to do with anything David did wrong. That it is Saul's ego, but he should really be pursuing what is right because he is the king, and kings are held to that, that standard of morality. Sure. So he also reminds Saul that David's bravery has been advantageous for Saul, that mm-hmm. Saul's reputation has increased because David's one of his commanders. And Saul makes a vow. You know, he's not going to kill David. And so David's restored to his place in Saul's courts, and he's in Saul's presence as before. So, you know, we've had this moment. Nobody's actually, the two injured parties have not, talk to each other. The ones who have had offense have not really spoken. Everything's just kind of gone back to the way it was, the status quo, and we're all going to pretend that we're one big happy family again because this is what we do. We don't confront the issue. We just try to restore things back to an equilibrium that we liked. So verse 8, there is a war. We aren't really told the reason for the war, but David goes out and faces the Philistines, and the Philistines, they flee before him. And all of this is just provocation for Saul to remember this is why he doesn't want David in the palace anymore. Mm. And, you know, God doesn't like status quos usually. He's all about disrupting them most of the time. And and he's not going to let Saul act like everything's okay. So verse 9, the harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing a liar. So we've heard this before. This was in the previous chapter. Again, that doubling that, that goes on with Saul's life. We are being told again and again why Saul cannot be king. And we talked about why it was significant that Saul was sitting in the safest house in all of the land holding a spear. You know, this, is, this is not something a king who is secure does. This shows how troubled he is. And we're also reminded David's enemies usually clutch a spear. This is the tip off that this is David's enemy. Hmm. So verse 10, Saul sought to pin David to the wall. David eludes him. The spears lodged in the wall, we're told. We're shown with the force that it struck. And David flees the life, uh, flees that night um, from Saul's presence. Now, separation from the house of Saul really is part of a necessary evolution for David. Right. Um, I, I think a lot of the things that we see that are problematic with David later on are things that he brought from Saul's house into his, his own house. Okay. And David could not be a part of Saul's house. And no matter how much he, he, he loved Jonathan and he wanted his family to be whole, he had to leave because there couldn't be any doubt that David's rule is established by God, mm-hmm. not through Saul's um, acclamation that, oh, David's my newest successor. This, this had to be a, an act of God. He needed to uh, uh, you know, avoid that further corruption. And, and like I said, we're starting to see the impact that Saul is having, most specifically in the way he is tre- um, treating women. And the seeds, the seeds have been planted, and some of them are going to take root. So 
Verse 11 through 17, uh, Mikhail returns to the scene. So Jonathan stepped aside and now we have the woman back. But this time she has a voice. She's an active agent and she's going to make decisions. She's going to take chances. She, she's, she's going to be a real figure and not just some kind of puppet um, that like we saw in the last chapter. So David's fled and in verse 11, Saul sends messengers uh, to David's house to watch it. He wants to know if Dave, is David going to come back home? And by the way, this is a great uh, verse where we see that Malak is uh, used as messengers, uh, not just as angels. So you can see it being used not as a title, but actually as An a office. Yeah. Function. Exactly. So it does apply to humans. It's not always a divine being, but a little Hebrew, just a little Hebrew trivia. trivia. But we learn in this verse too that the purpose for Saul sending these messengers to David is specifically to kill David. And so Michal warns David, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So she's got a grasp of the situation. Saul's not being covert about it anymore. He's not impulsively, you know, hurling a spear at David. He is making deliberate plans. Mm -hmm. And she, she doesn't have any hopes for the family to be restored. She doesn't expect there to be any good Thanksgiving dinners and everybody getting along singing Christmas Carol. She knows that her plan for the future cannot include the unity of her family. And in this moment, she chooses a side. And she chooses a side, the side of her husband. And, and she's really showing a love that's superior to Jonathan's in this moment because it's a love that's based in full knowledge of what she's risking mm -hmm. and what it's going to cost. Jonathan loved David, but there was still this kind of delusional aspect to what he expected to happen just because he loved David and loved his father. And she's dis making the dis decision, I am David's wife. I am not just Saul's daughter. And I am going to, to do what needs to be done here in order to preserve the family I'm supposed to create from here out. And so, we, again, we're reminded of Rachel and Leah going, yeah, we don't need our father anymore. We have a husband. So Mikhail is the first of three very significant women in David's life. Uh, she's the first. Abigail is the second. Um, and Bathsheba, Bathsheba is uh, the third. And each one plays a very particular role in the development of David as a, as a man and as a king. A very specific um, characteristics and aspects of his character are, are, are brought to light because of his interactions with these women. Yeah. And also, no, she's probably a very strong one because it says she let him down through the window. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's via rope or how are you doing that? But, you know, she's keeping him from falling to injury. Which shows how much he, he trusted her. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, now that you bring that out, I didn't even think about that. So, yeah, she's she's... And she's active. That's the main thing. She is taking a deliberate, decisive part in this moment. And she, she's defining herself with what she says, both to David in this night and then what she's going to say to her father later. And the window actually is very important. Uh, we'll get back to that. But because it's the words that she speaks at the window that to, tells us where she stands. And later on, she's going to have some other words. She says a, a window that tells us where she stands. But Rachel Adelman uh, in The Female Ruse, uh, we've referenced this book before, describes David's wives as, as women of the oath. And 
it shows as she goes through scenarios demonstrating how women use their words to define their role and, and basically making these oaths about who they're going to be and how they're going to function in society. So this is very much in contrast with the Mikhail that we were introduced to earlier who didn't have a voice mm-hmm. and Marab mm-hmm. who, who didn't make a vo- have a voice. Now we have Mikhail saying, this is who I'm going to be and this is what I'm going to do. And she puts actions behind her words. And we see a woman who has agency and a woman has the ability to decide who she's going to participate with. And it's really, that's a major change. And it shows us that maybe she wasn't just a pawn Mm -hmm. in in Saul's um, activity, but she did decide to go along with it because she saw, you know, she had the advantage of being with the man she loved. Right. So, um, so Michael, let's uh, verse, uh, Verse number. She let David down through the window. He fled and escaped. And and again, we're in the middle of another triad of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Rahab, who she lets um, uh, the spies down out of the window in Jericho. Mm-hmm. We have Michal. She's the center one. The final one is Jezebel. And we see her at the window. Now, she doesn't let anyone down out of the window. She gets thrown out of a window. Okay. And so... It's a little different. It, it is. It, it, it is. And there's a great article by uh, Dan, Don Seaman called The Watcher at the Window. And it's, uh, he talks about how women are connected by this window motif. He also goes into how men are. And it's a very fascinating article. Again, Vivian sent that to me. But he points out that when you find this, these women at the window, they're all connected with falls. Rahab, we have the fall of Jericho and therefore all of the Canaanites who live in land. Michal is the ha- fall of the house of Saul. Jezebel is the fall of the northern kingdom. All very specific mm. and influential events within the nation of Israel. It's very cool. It really is. Uh, and so you've got Rahab, who is clearly on the right side of history. Jezebel, who is clearly on the wrong side of history. And now we have Michal. Where is she going to fall? She's right in the middle of a civil war about uh, it, to happen. Exactly. Exactly. And which side is she going to take? So each woman plays a role in shaping not only the fate of their own household, but the fate of a nation. Yep. And again, we're going to find Mikhail at a window and her words are going to put her on a very different path. And the point is with Mikhail is she has agency. Despite how we were set up, she has agency. Mm -hmm. And her future depends on how she's going to use it. And we shouldn't miss that she has embraced it in this moment. Because remember, her, her, fa- her father had defined her. Her father had said, you are going to be a snare. She's going to be a snare for David. She was mm-hmm. a trap mm-hmm. for this man. And she renounces this as her identity. This is the, the significance of her words in this moment. I'm not going to be a trap. I'm going to be the means of salvation. And, and to think about the power she had in that, to, to stand up and say, I get to choose who I'm going to be. And th- the problem is, she's left behind. David doesn't take her with him. Uh, he makes no provision for her safety. He won't try to reclaim her until well after Saul's dead. He still sees her. David still sees her as Saul's daughter. Mm-hmm. 
he doesn't see her as his wife, even though that's who she says I'm going to be and, and proves that's who she wants to be in her acts by saving David. So David mm-hmm. misses who she was. And if this isn't my notes, but if we think back to Abraham and Abraham missing who Sarah was and mm-hmm. the fact that mm-hmm. she was that covenant partner that she, he should have relied on and expected to be the one through who uh, God's promises were fulfilled, this is why Isaac w- was delayed in his arrival for so long. And it wasn't until Abraham realized, hey, this is who Sarah is, that, that the, pro- the promised child arrives. Mm-hmm. And so th- I think there's something to this. And there, I think there's this warning, don't underestimate, you know, women shouldn't underestimate themselves, but men need to be paying attention. Who are the women in their lives? And right. are they really valuing them for the totality of the role God has cast them in? Right. And I, I, I it's amazing to me that, um, that we see this so often within the scriptures, but it, it's so often not even addressed. Right. And so, and Macau actually, she becomes a, a lesson to us not to become embittered whenever the men miss who we are because um, she does and it, it doesn't turn out well, but we'll get there later. So verse 13, we're told that she takes an image and laid it on the bed. That word image, that's ter- teraphim. Uh, teraphim is one of those funny words. It's always in the plural, even when it means one. Uh, and so she puts the, the, the teraphim in the bed and she puts a pillow of goat hair on it and she covers it with clothes. Mm. This connects us to two other stories. So we got Rachel with the teraphim that we already mentioned. Mm-hmm. But Rebecca covers Jacob in hair, in goat's hair, yeah. whenever he's try- she's trying to deceive Isaac. So we're, we're taken back to those two very important matriarchal um, figures within the history of, of Israel. So Rebecca and Rachel, I mean, those are two of the biggest names and two of the most heroic women known in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it, the only way you get bigger than that as far as the matriarchs is Sarah. And so to have Michael you know, brought in alongside and saying, this is what she did, it's what they did, this is showing us a glimpse of who she could have been. This is what makes her story so tragic, because now we see she had the ability to be everything that these other women were and to be just as effective. Mm-hmm. And the problem is she never steps fully into that. So um, if you want to find the story about Rebecca, that's Genesis 27, and we do have an episode on that. And yes, it is in deception. Now, the, the, problem, the problem is with Rebecca and Rachel's deceptions, they were both, um, they were both acts of, that lacked faith. And this is also a little clue that we shouldn't get our hopes up too high, but there's still that ambiguity. Um, Rebecca's deception resulted in the division of her family. Jacob went and lived in exile with Laban for years and years and years. Um, she, she died before she got to see her favorite son again. Mm-hmm. Rachel's deception resulted in her death. Remember when Laban approached, says, hey, my teraphim are missing. And Jacob says, well, whoever has them, I hope they die. And not realizing that he was pronouncing a death sentence on the wife that he loved. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, and we can argue that, that deception and manipulation were the only routes open to women. 
uh, in this time of this great patriarchy and that this is how women did use their agencies to, to fulfill their roles. But the, the problem is we have to, to balance it out is what are the demands of faith? Mm-hmm. Now, Rahab, of course, she stands at, at the opposite end of that because even though she used deception, she used deception as an act of faith because if she would have been found out operating in defiance to the city officials, mm-hmm. she would have been killed. Uh, if she'd been found acting in defiance to the territorial gods of the city of Jericho, she would have been killed. She risked her own personal safety, not just to, to get what she wanted. She risked her personal safety in defense of God and in furthering God's divine plan. And so we see this duality in Michael that's being on display. She's both brave and wise, but she's also scared and she's lacking faith. Mm-hmm. And so the writer leaves us in the, this kind of tension with, with her that makes you wonder, who is she going to be? And I also wonder, too, if we see a little bit of um, Sarah and Hagar in the story, because Hagar was an Egyptian slave. Um, you know, she was probably a gift from the king of Pharaoh, from Pharaoh to uh, Abraham after Sarah had been restored to him. Uh, you go back and listen to the story on that, where Pharaoh had taken Sarah as a wife, and God tells him, hey, not a great idea. Sure. And so we also have this, another story of a woman being taken and given without her consent. We're never told what Sarah thinks about this. Um, no insight at all. But the book of Samuel overall has these, these very deep-rooted themes of Israel and Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so Saul has enslaved Israel. He is, he is Pharaoh. He's the one who gives the woman. And he doesn't treat her as if she's any greater than a slave girl. And ultimately it's a slave girl who cannot give birth to the the promised nation, the covenant nation. Right. Hagar had to be cast out. And so there's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Michal because this, this house of Saul can't be allowed to continue as the ruling power within the nation of Israel because Saul has become no better than Pharaoh himself. And we should also remember we've moved into a new era of women. I mean, the, the, the book opened with Hannah, Hannah who had a problem, who chose not to manipulate, not to scheme. She just goes directly to God and says, hey, I need your help. And God moves on her behalf. Mm-hmm. And the, the course of the nation has changed. And Mikhail should have known this story. She should have heard this story. This should have been something that she was so familiar with that it should have provided some impact on how she dealt with um, how she dealt with the situations in her, her, her own life. And so um, there's, there's a lot going on beneath this that, that should make us stop and think about how we view this woman. Mm-hmm. But another interesting point, this is David's house. We're very clearly told this is David's house. Right. Why is there a teraphim in his house? Why is there this false god? I mean, this is a, an idol that is big enough to be mistaken for him being in bed. Right. So this isn't something small and tiny that Rachel hid under a camel you know, saddle. Right. This is big enough that he had to know it was there. Yeah, I, I do. That is a good question. And I, I kind of wonder if maybe this is one of the trophies he took back from after the battle with Goliath 
Well, um, I mean, we don't really have much indication, but I mean, that's and you would think he would have destroyed it, though. I mean, that this is why it's so. He should not have had it in his house. I just keep going back to that, and it's almost horrifying when you think of him being a man after God's own heart, and this is the anointed king, Mm -hmm. and he's letting idols into his house. I mean, when when Jacob and his family left Shechem to go to Bethel. They had to get rid of all the idols. Where did the idols come from? They came from Shechem. Mm-hmm. That they, they had gathered them up with the women as spoil, spoils of war. And God said, you can't take that into my kingdom. This is not going to be a part of our covenant relationship. So you've got to change this. So when the writer of Samuel is telling us the story, you're, not only is David treating the women horribly and, and not taking care of I mean, at this point he's not even taking care of his bride mm-hmm. and he's leaving her but he hasn't made sure that her house is a safe place to be spiritually oh yeah and so the temptation for for deceiving her father and deceiving everyone else he provided it right he let it be right there so i the, you can begin to see why some of the things happened the way they do in David's future. And you see the, you know, the influence that Saul is having on David coming through. I mean, maybe the reason he had a teraphim was because Saul had a, had a teraphim. And if kings have teraphims, then I'm going to be the king that I need to have a teraphim. I mean, that, that's one possible explanation. Maybe Michal brought it with her. Her family seems to have an affinity for these things. Um, Solomon, you know, maybe this is the reason why he's okay building these these um, temples for his wives because, mm-hmm. well, dad let mom have the teraphim, so, you know, it's not a big deal. We don't have to make a hard and fast stand on that. Um, the, the point is, when David messes up, we're supposed to be prepared for it. Right. It, it's already being shown, and... If we stop glossing over all of these little troublesome details and acting like they're no big deal, then David's bravery actually becomes more because we realize that he's not always walking in this perfect faith that has no breaks or, you know, cracks in it, that he really is having to overcome the culture of his day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He wasn't just born into some super godly society where it's just so easy to serve the Lord. He had to deal with, with those kinds of impacts. We're we're also seeing that you know these moments should be more troubling because if he does have these wonderful high victorious moments with God, then why isn't he staying there? Why is he falling down? And wait a minute, if this is the man after God's own heart, then what does it say about us? Mm -hmm. And, And you know, and I think ultimately it should be encouraging that if we fail, if we have these horrible moments where we mess everything up. Just like David could go back to God and say, hey, I, I, I need forgiveness and I need to restore the relationship. That, that same door is open to us. Right. And so we, we, we shouldn't be surprised. And the Bible never flinches away from people's sins and the way they're messed up. And that's true of David, too. Mm-hmm. So Again, it's a record of what <laughs> did happen. It's not always a record of the best way to go about things. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and I, I think too, it's kind of encouraging that, you know, even if you're born into a broken society where things that seem so right and so normal, when we find out they're against God's will or not what God expects or demands from us, 
um, it's not, we haven't failed beyond redemption. And because I think in our world, it, 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 there's so many things that society goes, oh, well, that's no big deal. And God's like, no, it's a big deal because it hurts our relationship. So I, I think it, we should find encouragement in, in this um, more than being discouraged. Right. So Yeah, I was, I was actually thinking that earlier. I was like, we should, we should be encouraged, but also make sure we're not taking it as license. <laughs> right. Um, to just do whatever we want. So Yeah. Yeah. So and, balance there. Well, and that's, yeah, exactly. Uh, Ruth is not a book on how to date. Uh, just... <laughs> Just in case anybody was wondering, but go back and listen to Ruth on that one. Um, So verses 12 through 16, we're moving into into a new story. Uh, Well, we're still kind of at the same story. Sorry. I had lunch, and I know you had lunch. I can see it on your face. Yeah, I'm like a little little groggy from lunch. Sorry about that. So verses 12 through 16, Saul sends his messengers to David's house. And and again, we're told they are there to take and to kill him. Um, he, he is not send, he's not going himself. He's actually sending out mercenaries to do his bidding. Saul is. And, uh, Mikhail tells them, Hey, David's in bed sick. And so the messengers, you know, they come back to Saul and they said, you know, he, he's sick. And Saul says, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. So, you know, if he's alive and kicking, I need you guys to handle it. But if he's sick, I think I can do it. <laughs> Well, I also think it's funny. They're supposed to go and kill him. But he's sick. So he's sick. Do you really want us to kill him while he's sick? They had some level of integrity left. (laughs) Saul doesn't. Uh, You know, yeah, he's got the stomach flu. He's having a bad day already. (laughs) Who knows what we're going to have to clean off our swords. Uh, Anyway. Well, I, I... but it does make you wonder why they pause. And, but I, how telling is this Saul that, you know, if you have to carry him up here in the bed, then I'll handle it. I mean, that, that's the thing. You, you see that Saul is not as brave as what he had once been. And, but also all pretense is gone. He has one objective now, and that's to kill David. And he's willing to do it by outnumbering David with troops. You know, not a fair fight. He's willing to kill a sick guy. I, I, he is not somebody you can commend or think of as being a very positive person. So when the, when the troops go back, they discover, uh, to, you know, go back to retrieve the bed, they discover the deception. Mm-hmm. And so verse 17, Saul says to Mikhail, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Mikhail answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So Mikhail offers a defense. David threatened to kill her is basically what she's saying. And she, if she didn't help him, then she was going to be dead. Now, in verse 11, it was Mikhail who suggested that David had to escape. Mm-hmm. And she was the one who lowered him down the window. I mean, if she'd wanted him dead or really feared for her life from him, why didn't she just drop him like you, like you said? I mean, she was pretty strong. He was trusting her at this point. Um, she devises the plan with the teraphim. Now, is, is, it, re- is it read that... Is it really to be read that she that he was that he threatened her, or if you know she suggested, hey, you know, if you're still here by morning, you're going to die. And David might have also taken that to imply that maybe if she was alleging swearing allegiance to him, that she might also be killed. So why should it be that you would die if I stay, kind of thing? But I don't know. Yeah, I know it's it's read 
that she is saying that David threatened her and it it is so convincing that the debate is, did he really threaten her? Hmm. And this is still a debate among scholars. Uh, and so we don't know if, you know, we've got all these reasons to think that he didn't really think of, or didn't threaten her because she actually goes above and beyond once yeah. he's gone. Mm-hmm. She didn't yell for help. She, she actually tried to give him more time to escape. Right. But, um, what she did was punishable by death because it was treason. Sure. And, you know, and we already know that Saul has absolutely no problem killing his children or the, uh, with the thought of killing his children with, with Jonathan and the rash vow that mm-hmm. he made. Um, so either her response is to, to denounce her, her allegiance to her husband and say, you know, look, he tried to kill me and I was scared. So, you know, daddy, let me come home and be, live here and be your daughter again. Or she's, she's saying um, she's, she's lying in order to protect her own life from Saul. Okay. So there's, there's conflict there and you can see why she would tell Saul this and, you know, she can't say that she was trying to help David. What would he do? Um, She really would be in trouble. And this is the reason why she's she's a troubling person because we want to have sympathy for her. We we want to celebrate her her bravery in defending David, but her speech to Saul plants the seed of doubt in our mind. Who was she really trying to to protect? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, did she do this because she loved him, or or was she doing it out of fear? Is she speaking to Saul this way because she still loves David, but she's scared for herself? I, we don't, we aren't told. Right. And so we have to kind of look at other things to, to, to get some clue. Um, cause the writer, the writer doesn't want to solve this ambiguity. He, he wants us to have this conflicted feeling about her as a person. It's very intentional that, that we wonder how is the bride going to respond? And, um, and we see kind of little hints of, of what's to come in, in some later verses. But in verse 18, um, David has, uh, I'll just read it. It says, Now David fled, escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done uh, to him. And he said, He and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. Now, we haven't seen Samuel in a long time. Yeah, yeah. And then, I noticed that. I was like, hey, it's Samuel. <laughs> it, it's like Gandalf reappearing after. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so he, he, he's back. And this is the, the second and last time Samuel and David are going to be together. And we know that Rama is Samuel's home. If you remember way back when, when we talked about that, it's one of the four holy sites that Samuel had established. It's about three miles from Gibeah, Saul's home. And so, you know, it's, it's easily like an hour's walk for David. I mean, that's, that's a stroll for him to walk there in an hour. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really know what Naoth means. We know it has something to do with shepherds um, and pastures. Uh, there's some ambiguity, but it seems fitting that this is where Samuel and uh, David decide to, to go live. And there almost is a sense that Samuel is reminding David of who he is. This is where you began. This is where you're supposed to be. And, you know, we have to remember, too, that David, once he killed Goliath, he was not allowed to return home. 
And evidently there was a pretty good stretch of time in here because the season had passed for him to marry Marab. He had a certain deadline for which to produce the foreskins to marry Macal. So, you know, it's been months at least. Mm -hmm. And it may have been even longer than that. So now when he returns home, he returns home not to his biological father. He, he returns home to his, his spiritual father. Now, a little bit of a side note on this. There are um, seven times in Judaism when a man is considered to be born again. And um, this also makes some really interesting parallels with John 3 when Jesus asked Nicodemus, you know, how can you be a teacher in Israel and not know this? Mm-hmm. Um, Nicodemus was not being introduced to a new concept. This was an established concept. Uh, you became born again when you became a son of a law, when you were, when you were bar mitzvahed. Right. You were born again when you married. Uh, you were born again when you had your first son, I believe. I should have written that down. Uh, but you were also born again when you became a king. And so when David was a king, he was reborn. Hmm. And so Samuel is in many ways, it is his father. And this is the reason why he goes back to Samuel, because Jesse doesn't know David's destiny. Samuel does. And this is the reason why David has to go to him to figure out, hey, where do I go from here? So um, the rabbis taught that Nioth was a place where prophets gathered to learn and, and practice their calling. The Bible doesn't clarify this. Right. But it would not surprise me. We know that Samuel did set up schools for prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that um, that was an ongoing tradition. We have it talked about later on in the Old Testament. Um, but this has implication for, for David because now he has a chance to learn from Samuel at this time. And we see evidence of David's prophetic giftings in the book of, of Psalms because there's so many prophetic Psalms. And we also know with, Sam, with Saul's early anointing that the, the Prophets were using musical instruments, and we talked about the significance of the canor or the lyre, sure. specifically with prophecy. So, <clears throat> verse 19, Saul receives word of David's location. And so Saul begins this process of getting David back, and, and it's described verses 20 through 21. I'm not going to read it, it, but three times Saul sends messengers to Naoth to take David. So mm-hmm. again, he's not going to get him himself. He, he's going to send somebody else. But each time the messengers see the prophets, and there were more than one prophet there, there was more than Samuel, mm-hmm. when, it sees the prophet, when they see the prophets, the messengers begin to prophesy. <laughs> and they are completely stopped in their tracks, and they, they, they can't finish their mission. And so Saul finally has enough, and he decides he's going to go to Ramah himself. Now, he doesn't know that the messengers have gone to Ramah, seeing that Samuel isn't there, and then gone to Naioth. Uh, and the Bible's really not specific about that. It's, it's funny. They don't give the progression, but that's almost how it has to happen. Mm-hmm. And so Saul goes to Ramah, and he asks where David is, and he's told that, that David is at Naioth. And in verse 23, we're, we're told, and he went to Nioth and Ramah. So Ramah's kind of the, the city, but it's also the county. And so Nioth is a particular place within the county that's different from the city. Sure. So the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he, as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. So unlike the messengers who have to see the prophets prophesying to begin prophesying, once Saul sets out, once he just turns in that direction, he begins prophesying too, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have to wait to see 
like the other ones do. Right. So verse 24, he, he strips off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel, and he lay naked all day and all that night. And thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now the writer wants you to know that this, this deed is connected back to Samuel 10. This is Saul's mm-hmm. anointing. Right. Both passages describe events at Ramah. There's an important uh, number in each story. Uh, the donkeys lost for three days, three signs given to Saul, three units being sent to take David got that repeating of three in there. Psalms overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and prophesied. And again, that proverb, just in case you missed it, mm-hmm. is connected in each story. And so, um, you know, is Saul also among the prophets? This time is definitely, we talked before, whether it was, was that meant to be negative? Was it meant to be positive? This time it's negative. There's no doubt about it. The man has gone out of his mind. He is laying naked. He is unable to move, just prophesying how humiliating for a king to be in this. And especially when we bring that to David, bringing back the Ark of the Mm -hmm. Covenant for a king to be in this this position. Yeah, God has just done him in. He is having to completely surrender to God's will, not just in the person of David. David's not coercing or forcing Saul to be subject to God. God is the one who's enacting his power. So um, we're going to talk more about what that looks like. I've got some more pages, so we'll wait until the next episode. Yeah. But because um, I, I don't think I'd ever actually paid attention to this story. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> Isn't it? Very weird. Yeah, Which, we kind of glossed over it in Sunday school growing up. So. <laughs> well, well, they said naked. Yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. Well, hey, I look forward to seeing that. But uh, yeah, we're kind of we're running out of time, but I could d- to dive into that as deeply as we want to. So everyone, uh, come back next week. We'll be glad to have you. And if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up, Raven Creek SC, on all the social media, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.